so the accidental counselor Carl that I teach and present is a, a, is based on the solution focused approach to counseling and coaching and not many people are aware of that approach uh, most people are aware of cognitive behavior therapy or uh, uh, other approaches and I think the solution focused approach is a ready made tool especially if you're working in a school context. So that's uh, two lines around the theory of it. Let me give you a practical example. So if you're speaking to a student perhaps around a behavior issue, ultimately, all too often, the questioning is around the unwanted behavior, right? So it might be like, so why are you doing that? And what makes you, what got you so angry and all of these sorts of things. And so it, so the questioning takes the student's direction typically back into the past and into the problem. So in the approach that I talk about, we say we need to acknowledge and validate the problem and what's being presented, but then we want to pivot the conversation to a solution-focused orientation. So, You're listening to the Augmented Learning Podcast and Video Log, stories from inspiring educators, leaders, and influencers who are challenging the status quo. Today's episode is sponsored by My Study Series, an online learning platform supporting Kiwi teachers and students through NCEA. With automated self-grading quizzes after every video, My Study Series ensures students receive immediate feedback on their level of understanding. Check it out now at mystudyseries.co.nz. Kia ora tato and welcome back to the Augmented Learning Podcast and Video Log where you're able to grow, learn and develop by accessing high quality PLD when you need it most. I'm your host Carl Condoliff and today we're catching up with Rocky Biasi from Australia. Before we get started, you might have noticed that we have a new home for the podcast, augmentedlearning.co.nz. If you head along to the website, you'll find a ton of useful content. We have access to free professional learning across a range of topics you'll find a new home for all of our workshops. We have a new educational blog and soon we'll have some premium certification courses and an online marketplace where you can sell, buy or give away any digital educational resources you might have developed. So if you haven't checked it out already, head along to augmentedlearning.co.nz and sign up for one of our free courses. Today's guest, Rocky, is a friend and he's also one of uh, my clients. I support him with his e-learning for the content that he delivers and he's a bit of a latecomer to teaching. He started when he was about 30 years old. Rocky experienced some post-traumatic stress as a young man and upon seeking help for that became consumed by books provided to him by his counsellor. Rocky explains that this turned his life upside down and he really discovered his passion going on to complete a counselling degree before heading down this fantastic journey culminating in the support he provides to teachers from all around the world through the accidental counsellor training. We talk on a range of topics. The podcast or the episode does go a little bit longer than normal, but Rocky's an absolute gun when it comes to his area of expertise. And we talk a lot about failure, about student pressures, and a whole lot of other topics that are quite relevant right now. But the one thing that really got me was 
Rocky's explanation of a solutions-focused approach when dealing with challenging students. Now this really goes against what I've experienced in education and probably the way I approach challenging students also, which seems to be on this uh, focused on the problem or issue at hand, which Rocky explains places a student right back into the context that we're trying to avoid. So I'm looking forward to sharing this episode with you. Uh, I hope you enjoy it and I hope you take a lot of learning from it. Rocky, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Carl. Great to be here with you. Hey, so it's Sunday night. Uh, it's been a it's been a wet weekend in New Zealand. How how has the weather been in Australia? It's uh, it's dry, but uh, very cold where I am in uh, Glenmore Park, out near Penrith, at the foot of the Blue Mountains. So that's uh, that's in New South Wales. It is, maybe in Western Sydney. What sort of what sort of temperatures have you been having lately? Oh, we've been getting, you know, like one, one degree, two degrees in the mornings. Um, it, it warms up um, as we go out throughout the day. Get to the top, tops of, um, you know, between 15 and 20, you know, um, sometimes if it's a really nice day, 22, which is, you know, you can't complain, but it's still sort of winter out here, so. Yeah, no, it's not super hot. I, I thought I expected Australia, even though you're through winter, I expected you to be a little bit warmer. Yeah, well, out here in the west, we it gets hot in the summer and cold in the winter. <laughs> okay, okay. Hey, I really appreciate having you uh, on on the show, and it's been something I've been meaning to to do for a wee while now because I've I've had a lot to do with you over the, probably the last twelve to eighteen months, and I've I've seen what you do, and and I think what what you do and the work you're doing is just amazing, and seeing. Uh, some of the stories that you share and the content you put out, it's its really impressive. But to kick off the episode, I just want to hear a little bit about your background and your story and kind of what's shaped your life to the point where we find you now. Because um, unlike some of my other uh, guests that I have on the show, you're not actually um, a teacher at the moment and you entered teaching quite late, didn't you? I did, Carl. Uh, I entered uh, teaching um in my early thirties, actually, and um, it's uh, every time I think about it, and every time I share the story, I, I I shake my head. You know, it's quite a surreal experience. Even now, reflecting back, you know, um, even though I did teaching for what we call work experience here, when you're in year ten as a sixteen year old, just before you're you're you know we launch into senior school, which is eleven and year eleven and twelve out here um, in Australia, Uh, I did teaching for work experience and after the experience, my careers counsellor and the the, uh, head of year interviewed me and said, so son, you want to be a teacher? And I said, yes, sir. And I remember them having this very pained look on their face and they said to me, "Um, look, son, we think you're really going to struggle and you've done well in commerce. We suggest that you probably should just leave and get a job in the bank. So that sort of tells you a little bit about my academic ability back in the day. And um, and my parents were Italian immigrants who came out to Australia with the flood of immigration after the Second World War. And they they were uneducated back in the home country and even when they arrived. So um, when I told them that, they were delighted because they they didn't value education just because they didn't experience it. You know, my brother and I are 
the only two of five siblings who have tertiary qualifications. His was more a traditional route, you know, he'd go on to, he went on to senior school and university. And, uh, but for me, I started working in the bank and um, I really hated it. It wasn't for me. And by the time I was 19 years of age, I left and didn't know what to do um, and thought, well, you know, my parents had a fruit and veggie shop, so I thought I'll open up a sports store. Um, and whilst that was uh, a real challenge at the time, because I knew nothing about anything to do with any of that, um, you know, I'd gotten some help and persevered and we moved into bigger premises. And, you know, we were working that retail business for almost 10 years into the uh, early 90s. And um, so that gives you a little bit about my age. I turned 54 in October. Um and at that time, Carl, I had um, several mental health experiences and I didn't even know what was happening to me, you know. Um, uh, so this was 25, almost 25 years ago. And so while certainly we've come a long way in understanding more about mental health and well-being these days, I, I would say that I was probably even below the average level of understanding back then, you know. And and so I remember feeling depressed, not that I knew what that was. I didn't call it that. I just felt flat and down and unhappy, you know. That's the, the extent of my language around it. And I remember saying to my wife, who when she met me, I had this business, and I said to her, is this what I'm supposed to be doing in my 50s? This is when I'm in my late 20s. And she said, well, she said, she just looked at me and said, well, what do you mean? What do you want to do? And I said, look, I don't know. But when I was a kid, I thought about teaching. And she said, well, you know, if, you, if that's what's going to make you happy, you should do that. And I remember saying to her, I can't, I'm not smart enough. And I'm sure that a lot of your audience can relate to that. Um, if not personally, definitely with, you know, those students they come across. Um, what we call identity belief, how one sees oneself. And she just looked at me and laughed and said, how ridiculous. And I remember getting upset saying, well, it's not ridiculous. And I, I told her what I just shared with you about what those teachers had told me. But cutting a long story short, Carl, um, um, we, I, I applied as a mature age student to go to university to do my teaching degree and um, had another mental health incident um a reaction to a post-traumatic stress. I didn't even know what that was until someone, a lecturer at university, um, who, I, who was a great mentor and friend to me, um, I, my, my dad passed away three days before my 18th birthday. And um, so I'm now almost 30 years of age. So this is about 12 years. And every time I would hear or see an ambulance, I'd have a, a reaction, you know. And so she noticed that and said, well, you know, what, what just happened there? And I, so I t just told her that story. And she said, you know, you really need to speak to a professional. I think you have post-traumatic stress. And I still remember saying, what's that? So that's, it was a very strange experience for me because I'm now in my first year education degree and I find myself getting some counseling and that turned my life upside down also. So um, I remember devouring, I, I loved it. It just, I devoured every book that the therapist was giving me. And um, I remember saying to her, where did you learn to do this? Everyone should be doing it, you know? And um, and she said, settle down, Rocky, not everyone takes to it like you do. But of course, uh, I then pursued a, a counseling degree. So now I'm doing my education degree by day and my counseling degree by night. And so by the time I finish and I'm a first year teacher in the late 90s, 
Um, I walk into a school setting with degrees in both areas. And I have to say to you, Carl, having that degree in counselling really helped my teaching. No end. I can't begin to describe how how much it helped. Um, and I spent 10 years in the classroom um, and then I spent some time as a school counsellor. I've been in private practice and back in 2008 created the accidental counsellor training and have been really um, blessed and fortunate to run workshops uh, across Australia and in your great country in New Zealand and, and late last year over in Southeast Asia. So it's been an amazing ride. Um, you know, talking about and presenting workshops around the accidental counsellor around the world and 25 years ago, not knowing anything about mental health or well-being. So um, it tried, I tried to condense a long story in, in a short little bit of background there, mate. Oh, that's really good. And, and, and you touched on some really interesting things. And the thing that stuck out for me there, and because I link back to some of my personal experiences, and it's that identity belief and thinking about what what um, what you want to do or what you're good at and, and how you perceive your skill set or your skill values. And, and I had, not, not too dissimilar to your experience, but I, I recall being in a classroom, and I'm not sure if I've shared this on the podcast yet, but it was Form 1, I think, and we had to stand up and say to our teacher um, and in front of the class what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I, I got up and I was really nervous because um, I was a very shy kid. I, I still am pretty shy. But I stood up and I said, I want to be a pilot. And she sat there laughing and she said, sit down, Carl, you'll never be a pilot. And I was just like, that hit me for like 10, 15 years in terms of that identity belief and what I could achieve and what I could do. And I know education has changed a lot over the, over the years and we don't really see teachers acting like that. But man, it, it can it can hit you for six. And you also, you touched on a lot of mental health and some of the experiences you had. And that was really interesting to see how that's kind of shaped your career and your pathway. And I think that's um, when you can have that uh, real life impact and have that guide your um, decisions and your processes and your pathway, it makes it really powerful. Yes. Well, I, I found that, um, Carl, you know, I, I, I've been, I mean, I think, I think that, um, from my experience, most people who go into counselling go into counselling because they're they're looking to, you know, to do some work on themselves. Really, you know, um, first and foremost. And I mean, look, certainly that's been my experience, and I, I've just been so fortunate to have worked with and learnt from some of the best um, therapists, psychotherapists, psychologists in the world. I would say, and. Um, and, and so then it's you just want to go and share that, right? You know, I, I just want to be able mm. to just go out and share what I've learned and be, and to be able to, and if that helps, you know, I mean, it's just a delight. What was that feeling when you, you mentioned how you started consuming and digesting some of these books? What was, and, and how it blew your mind a little bit, what was that like? What was that feeling like when you started reading stuff and it just like hit you and made sense? What, what was that like? It was extraordinary, Carl. It really was, and and I, I don't know if any, you know, people who are my vintage. Uh, I mean, the there was a famous, famous book. The author's has passed now, called "The Road Less Travelled." I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it, no. um, Carl. Really famous in psychology and self help, mostly um, written by um, a, a famous psychotherapist, M. Scott Peck, um, who, who's passed now for quite a while. And that was the very first book along this this line of 
you know, that, that I dread, you know, and, and, and so then I, I just devoured every book around psychology, well-being, behaviour, emotional healing, like you name it, mate, whatever I could get my hands on, I would just devour. And, um, and it was a whole world. It was, I, you see, Carl, this, this is something that I sometimes try to sit and think about. Um, a, a lot of anxiety that I see these days is about what, what's the future going to bring, you know? Mm. And, you know, I have a 15-year-old daughter and I, I sometimes listen to some of the things she tells me her and her friends um, have a chat about and and they're saying now, you know, like, um, well, you know, I want to do this in my life and I should have so many backup plans. And I remember saying, I say to my daughter, you should have plans, no doubt but also be open to what life reveals for you because there was this was so far outside my paradigm that there's I could not have thought of this I didn't even know what this was this is how unlikely my story is so there's something to be said about planning and going after the future and 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 making things happen for your life sure but there's a whole other level that most people don't discuss, and that is that sometimes there are life events that mould you and push you in certain directions. And to be open to that, to be open to how I like to describe it, life reveals itself. And and so be op- being open to that, I think, is a really important skill. And and to be re- relaxed about that too, Carl. I mean, I say my my daughter, you know, she gets worked up, and I just say to her, "Listen, darling, um, having backup plans are fantastic, but having a backup plan about something that needs to be happening in five years' time is not good thinking. You know, you're spending too much energy in the future where you really need to be focusing in what's happening here and now." It's hard though. We put so much pressure on our kids and our students to know their next step, but we probably we're probably doing them a disservice by enforcing that or, or putting that pressure on them. And it should just be about them being curious and exploring and finding it in their own time. Because you know, if they don't go to university next year, it's not that big a deal. They can take their gap year, they can look at the trades, whatever. But by saying hey you need to do this and that and you need to be thinking about this and it's march and next month you really need to be making decisions it just doesn't help the situation does it not at all carl not at all and 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 i don't i i, I want to be gentle here but it, I, I get really passionate about this because obviously it touches my own personal story um and I think we are doing them a disservice. I think the word you use there is right on. You know, it's about curiosity. I, I think we should, uh, I, anyway, mate, don't get me started. I can just go on a massive rant. Look, look I, I, I was a classroom teacher, no harder job, no harder job that I've ever had in my life. Um, and so this is by no way a criticism of the hardworking um, teachers out in the world. But we really do have a problem with our education system that I still think is geared toward the industrial age when when the internet has revolutionized a brand new age, hasn't it? You know, yeah, and totally. uh, and we need to help our young people um, prepare for that. So, so mate, for someone of my vintage, um, that type of thinking that 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 that's that could probably have been acceptable. You know, mm. um, when I was a, a teenager. Um, you know, because back in the day, you know, you would work in the 
bank or whatever you would do, you would choose a profession and, um, you know, you, you would be there for most of your life and then you'd get a great retirement check payout. And, you know, so, but those days are long gone. And, um, and, and, and the way, and, and the jobs of the future that are coming, it, that change and that pace of change has been so rapid for our young um, folks that the truth of it is, Carl, that there, there'll be jobs in five or 10 years that we've never even heard of or dreamt of. And yet here we are saying you need to make decisions. Um, and where I would rather us spend a lot more time nurturing and, develop, and, and identifying a student's key signature strengths and then helping them develop and grow those strengths because and and then and then because that that's what happens when they leave the world of school right um ultimately um in the global economy the way it works is that then there's a, a value exchange you bring your strengths this is the work you this is how you and I met Carl you know yeah. you you've got a a fantastic skill set and you're extraordinary with learn, um, LMSs, learning management systems. You really helped me get my online courses um, up so we could share them around the world. And that's how we met. And so you bring your strengths to the table. I needed those strengths. So then there's an exchange. Um, and uh, I, I would just, unfortunately, in Australia, uh, I think you guys are probably better than us, but in this regard, but in Australia, we're, we're we're following the American path of a lot of mm. standardized testing. So we just take we just take young people and we just put them through a, a standard experience, you know. Um, and whilst I, I know that's an exaggeration and there are certainly in, in our country different pathways to get to university and post-school um, work and trades, there certainly are and we're getting better at different pathways. I honestly still think we're way behind what what our young people need. And, and then when... And then when we see that there's such a high mental health um, issues with our young people and that they're not engaged when it comes to school, you know, really we need to stop and reflect and think, well, what's going on here? And what's going on as far as I'm concerned is that the system's not made to meet their needs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's 100%. And I get frustrated when I talk to other educators um, around some of these challenges and, you know, how we're, we're in a system that was is, it stems from the industrial age and all of that. But um, we need more people who are willing to embrace this train of thought that, you know, to nurture some of this curiosity in our students. Um, but it is hard and it is hard to, to advocate for change. But can you, can you tell us the concept behind the accidental counsellor and, and just for our audience, just describe what it's all about and, and how it works. Yes, thanks, Carl. And thanks for the opportunity to, to chat about um, the, the, this work that I love so much. Um, so when back going back to my bio, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm a first-year teacher. I'm qualified in, in education and in counselling. And for those of us who work in schools, um, well, from someone like me who went to school, left for a decade. By the way, that was a 10-year gap period, um, Carl. So, um, and then, so, uh, and then, you know, school, left for 10 years, then university and, and back to school. Schools are a strange place. They're really strange. I mean, they're a, they're a microcosm of society. And it was remarkable because I would hear conversations that um, teachers, school staff would have with not just students, but with parents, with other colleagues. I mean, you're having conversations with a range of different people 
um, throughout the day. Like, I mean, if uh, there the people, this is why teachers are so highly should be so highly valued and sought after because teacher skill sets are incredible. Uh, in the corporate world, you might have a manager who might manage six people, ten people, but you, you're managing, especially in a secondary school, sometimes up to a hundred people in a day. You know, it's quite quite an extraordinary skill set that we have as teachers, um, and. And so I would hear a lot of these conversations and because of this background in counselling, I would often think, oh, no, don't say that. No, that's not the right question. Oh, no, you're taking them down the wrong path here. Um, and 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 what the, the principal and the executive staff would also notice the way I would conduct interviews, conversations with other parents and staff, and and they see could see the difference and, and, and knew that I was qualified in, in counselling. And one day... My principal, I'm racing to class, and my principal said to me, you, you should formalize this informal professional development that you're doing. I had no idea what he was talking about. I'm, I'm trying to get my, keep my head above water, get into class and trying to, um, you know, be a great teacher. Um, but there was certainly a need. Teachers and school staff are skilled in and experts in what we do, but with no background in counselling or coaching or mentoring, sometimes those conversations that we all have in a school, right, you know, when a student's emotionally distressed, perhaps a parent who's upset or angry, um, or a colleague who's going through some struggles, um, the truth of it is we're accidental counsellors at work and at home, whether we know it or not, it's the compassionate human response to people's emotional and mental distress. You're obviously... Um, not we're not talking about being a clinical counsellor, but that's what I mean by accidental counsellor. You walk in a class, and all of a sudden you're in the corridor somewhere, or you'll cross the, the 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 yard, the playground, and you have a student walk up to you, and they're upset or they're in tears, and you need to respond to that accidental counsellor, you know. And and so that's where the name was born, and um, I created this training back in 2008, and like I said, it's. It's taken me um, all over the, the world, and, and um, that, that's the, the premise of it, is basically teaching um, people, in, uh, school staff, basic counselling and coaching skills for when inevitably we have these types of conversations. When you break it down and you think about that dis- description that you just gave of an accidental counsellor, and you think about your day-to-day and what you're... Uh, from the moment of waking to the moment you get in your car at the end of the day, if you just think about how many times you would be an accidental counsellor, whether it's with um, a colleague when you get to school, um, somebody who's had a really bad day or they're frustrated at another staff member and they want to talk about it, or a student who um, uh, has a little bit of self-doubt around a piece of work and they need some feedback, or a kid who has been bullied, like... I, w- I would imagine that in a, any given day, I'm being an accidental counsellor 10 to 20 times a day. And is that the sort of thing that this, uh, the program that you run supports, like say helping me identify those scenarios and those situations and put me in a better position to support that person? Exactly right, Carl. That's exactly it. You know, I mean, we just can't avoid those conversations when you work in a school. You just, I mean, you can try to, um, but if, you, if you've got if you've got really good rapport, if you have great relationships with your students, if your students respond to you, you are more at risk than the 
than most other teachers because the students are are attracted to you in that in the sense that they feel like they well well they can they 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 sense that you care about them they so the student trusts you they feel safe with you so no wonder they will come to you you know and 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 be open to having these types of conversations um, obviously with teachers who don't have those types of relationships uh, you know students students pick that up too and they just think well I'm not going to speak to that person um, but that just tells me Carl that you have great relationships with your students your students trust you and they feel comfortable with disclosing some of their um, you know issues and mental and emotional struggles with you so if we go back a, if we go back a couple of um, conversations into the podcast and you talked about how you would you'd be just not eavesdropping but you'd be around and you would hear teachers and other staff members talking to students or having these dis, these conversations in what ways were they approaching them incorrectly? So the accidental counsellor, Carl, that I teach and present is a, a, is based on the solution-focused approach to counselling and coaching. And not many people are aware of that approach. Uh, most people are aware of cognitive behaviour therapy or uh, other approaches. And I think the solution-focused approach is a ready-made tool especially if you're working in a school context. So that's uh, two lines around the theory of it. Let me give you a practical example. So if you're speaking to a student perhaps around a behaviour issue, ultimately, all too often, the questioning is around the unwanted behaviour, right? So it might be like, so why are you doing that? And what makes you, what got you so angry and all of these sorts of things. And so so the questioning takes the student's direction typically back into the past and into the problem. So in the approach that I talk about, we say we need to acknowledge and validate the problem and what's being presented, but then we want to pivot the conversation to a solution-focused orientation. So as an example, if I'm speaking to a student around a behavior issue, I I would say something like this. Um, So typically I would say, so are you happy with the way things are going right now? Now, if it's a discipline issue, typically they would say no because they feel like they've been picked on or something like that. And then then a a typical solution-focused question could sound like this. How would you like things to be? If things were better for you in class, if coming to school was a better experience for you, what do you think would need to change? What do you reckon you might need to do to help that? So those types of questions point towards the present moment and the immediate future, and it helps them um, un- and it helps them paint a picture of their desired outcome or next best step. One of the key questions I like asking, especially at the beginning, is a two-part question like what do you need most right and that's the first part right now second part what would be most helpful for you right now and so rather than going into the problem and going into the past so what did you what did you use that language toward that teacher and why did you hit that student all those questions um uh going taking them into the past and, and into the problem because people think that well if i analyze the problem if i help the student analyze the problem well then 
you know, they'll be able to change behavior, but that's not quite true. Sure, insight and awareness is important, but what's much more important to help create change is helping them paint a picture of what I like to call their next best step, because how can you make a change if you don't know what direction to move in? It's a little bit about that. And um, that you've really, uh, you've in a way, you've kind of blown my mind there a little bit, because I, I think how, when you were describing that, I thought about what I would be saying in that situation, and it would be something along the lines of, how do you think your actions have affected the rest of the group? Which is probably not a, a poor approach to that sort of scenario, but you're right. That just puts them straight back in to the situation. They're going to think, oh, well, you know, I might have impacted that person and it's going to make them feel bad again. And it gets them nowhere near a solution for that individual. And it just seems, uh, while it seems a good approach to take, a good piece of questioning, it, it doesn't bring them any closer to changing their behavior, does it? That's true, Carl. That's a good question. And, 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 and I think that at the right time, that that could be useful. Um, and, uh, but, but like I say, um, and, 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 and if you deliver that question, particularly at the wrong time, when yeah. they're still emotionally elevated, they could be on the defensive, you know, yeah. well, it wasn't my fault. So this, so this person did this to me and, you know, you know, we've all heard this, right? And so now they're on the defensive and they're, and they're having to defend themselves. And, and so now it becomes a little bit more argumentative. And so the more they defend themselves, the more we try to get them to take responsibility. And the more we try to do that, the more they defend themselves. So we go back into our separate corners. So what I advocate is connect first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, um, connect first. Uh, so I would say something like this is a little bit provocative and a little bit radical, Carl. I, I would say, um, I would say, hey, you know, um, you, you, you did ABC. Um, and I'm that and I'm thinking that you probably had good reason to do that. Now, that's very vague and general. But consider this, all behavior meets a need. And so if a student doesn't want to come to school, if a student has, um, you know, pushed another student or yelled or swore or whatever, and you were to say, um, so listen, you, you, you did this and you described the behavior and, and I'm figuring you probably had good reason to do that. More often than not, they would say, yes, I've got good reason to do. You swore at the teacher. Um, that's not acceptable here. But I'm thinking you've probably had some reasons why you did that. And they would say, they would say something like, yeah, I had some reasons. That teacher is giving me a hard time or, you know, they'll say something like that. And so then so you're, the next you're giving them You're giving them a bit of respect by questioning like that, aren't you? You're acknowledging that they had a reason. They have um, – it's just a respect thing, I think, that feels to me. That's right, Carl. And, in fact, the word there was acknowledge, and we talk about this. We say in, when we're connecting, you need to acknowledge and validate and even normalise their experience, you know, um, and so that's what we're saying. You know, it's a little bit, like I said, a little bit radical. You you swore at this teacher; it's not acceptable. But I'm thinking that you would have had some reasons why you, ex- you know, you you had this burst of energy to, ex- to 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 swear that way or to curse that way. Something must have happened, triggered it. Yes, this teacher is mean, or this teacher is picking on me, or whatever they say. You know, um, and but what at that point? 
the student was able, so what we got there was, yes, from the student, there's an acknowledgement, right? They feel like you get where they're coming from. And unless we can do that first, unless we can make the student feel that we, uh, we, we can empathise with their position, that we can see it through their eyes, uh, it, unless the student feels like, you know, you get it, well, then why would they listen to anything that we have to bring to the table? Um, once we do this, we, we develop that respect and that connection and that rapport. Then we can ask questions like um, things like, well, now, now, now there's some, you know, there's some uh, issues you're dealing with now because you've just sworn at a teacher. Um, tell me the next time you feel like this or uh, what, would, what do you think might be a better way of going about it? So those solution-focused questions to help them paint a picture of their next best step typically come best after we connect with them first. They feel like we get where they're coming from. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. What do you what do you what do you think are the biggest challenges facing our youth today? So obviously we're dealing with um, supporting teachers and educators to be accidental counsellors, but what do you think are those biggest challenges that our youth face that we might encounter as an accidental counsellor? I mean, you know, you know, Carl, you could probably, um, I would love to hear from you, you know, the, the challenges that you experience day to day, especially with the students in, in your country. I've been to New Zealand to present the Accidental Counselor. It, it, it's similar to um, our country. Uh, people argue, you know, I think it's a false argument, a narrative, to be honest. Um, oh, there's a, an increase in mental health, and that's just because we're more aware of it these days. Well, okay, that's mm. true. But that's that's easily dismissing, I think, some a, a deeper underlying reality that there is a genuine increase. It's not just because we have more awareness around mental um, illness and mental health these days. Um, mm. There are lots of issues um, that our students face, Carl. Um, I, I think that, to me, this might sound strange, but in the age of the internet and social media. But it's about relationships and a sense of disconnection, to be quite honest, um, is what I see. And that, and then, then that feeds in that uh, we see that manifested in anxiety and depression. Um, I mean, there's lots of lots of things, trauma, and um, and, and and of course, people's um, socioeconomic backgrounds that they come from. Lots of issues that that young people would face. But generally speaking, what I'm seeing is, despite the the ability to connect on social media, um, it's not when our young people are not developing the deeper relationships um, that I think humans experienced, not just in my generation, but even, you know, 100 or 200 years ago. Um, uh, th there's a real truth, I think, Carl, that um, you can't raise a young person on your own, that it takes a village, you know, that's a there's a real deep wisdom yep. and truth in that. And I think that's what we're missing, frankly. I think quality human connection is is one of the uh, most important things that we can consider as as we grow and develop. And, you know, I, I see a lot in, in my school, I, I see that relationship issue with, with kids and a lot of that stems from social media. Another one I've noticed is failure and coping with failure. And if you think about failure, 
and how a, how a student might struggle to deal with that. Again, it come it can you can relate it back to relationships. I think back to the times where I failed in life. I always had somebody there to talk to, to talk through it with, and be supported yeah. through that process. But if we are saying and if you're identifying that relationships are a big problem and people don't have those uh, peers or family members to fall back on and comfortably talk over those failures or those challenges or those struggles, then it's going to be really hard for them. Absolutely, Carl. And, you know, there's a lot of research that says that even for our most at-risk students, having one really strong connection with one adult member of staff I mean, you've, they've got to have peer friends, but they've also got to have adult influences also. And it only just, just takes one. And and so um, that's why it's critical that, um, I mean, you know, we're, 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 as teachers, we're always pushed about the curriculum and getting results and all of that sort of stuff. But it's the social and emotional aspect of it that I think really helps with learning and helps uh, develop the young person's character so they can go out in, into the world. Um, I, I, I've, got, I've got a lot to say, by the way, Carl, if we've got time about this whole we've idea around failure. We've got time, mate. Let's let's go for it. I can push out some of the other questions, and I, I like this concept of failure. Yeah, well, I mean, I just think I, I, I have a dream, Carl, that hopefully one day before I leave this planet, you know, that we can completely redefine what achievement and success is. Because in our societies, especially in the Western world, I think pretty much across the world, generally speaking, not just Western world, um, achievement and success is you nailed it. You achieved a result. You got this grade you got this job you have this car you you know it's it's that's how we measure it you know did, did you win did you lose it's very binary it's black and white and i think it's a false narrative because my definition of achievement of success is progress it's growing it's developing and when you look at elite athletes and elite sporting teams, they understand this concept very, very well. Now, it's intriguing, don't you think, Carl, because of all of the places where results are key, you would think it would be in elite athletes and sporting. You know, there's a, a lot at stake, right? Um, yeah. And people, and people, um, you know, they, 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 they lose, they get sacked as coaches or they get dropped if, as if you're a player, if you're not performing, you know? Mm. And so you're thinking, hang on a second, Rocky. No, no, no. That, 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 that context is very results driven. And I'd say indeed it is. But what drives the results is a fundamental focus on process. And that is, what do I need to do to achieve the result? There's completely two different ways of thinking here. It's being obsessed with the result. We have to win. I have to get this grade, whatever that is. So that's one way of looking at it. Or it's, this is where we've got to get to. Now, what do I need to do personally or as a team to help us get there? So then we're in the process. And you see this when, uh, as an example, I, I use this as an example in our workshops, Carl, where an Olympic swimmer can can get out of the pool and they're, and they're 
panting and they're, they're catching their breath, you know, and the reporter sticks their microphone under their mouth and says, you know, you, you didn't win the gold or you missed out on the medal. How are you feeling? And the swimmer in between, um, you know, panting and catching their breath says, I feel great, you know, and typically they say that they feel great because they just achieved their personal best result. And, and so that was a, that's a classic example. The reporter sees achievement as the, a medal. You didn't get the medal. How are you feeling? You know, you must be disappointed. You just, you, you just missed out on the medal. And the swimmer is delighted because it's the best result they've ever achieved. It was their personal best. They are completely obsessed about process. Is that making sense, Carl? Yeah, it does. And it, when you like you've mentioned success quite a lot and when I think of what success is to me I keep coming back to the famous John Wooden definition of success which is peace of mind which is a direct direct result of self self satisfaction and knowing you did your best to become the best you're capable of becoming and that sounds very fluffy but then when you unpack what John Wooden is all about and you see his pyramid of success and you look at all of the processes that are within that and the cornerstones of the pyramid and it's all just one big process. And I think that's really interesting that you talk about that and you then you mention that reporter because in the classroom, it's very easy to default to this student A got uh, an excellence grade in the assessment, they are successful, this student over here, student B, only got an achieved. Uh, he was probably a lot capable, but all he got was this. So he's less successful. But how do we know? How can we define success for that person? That kid might be going through uh, a hell of a time at home and he's pulled through and come out with something where he knows he did the very best he was capable of doing in his situation. But we tend to carry this lens where we paint a picture of what success is and it can only be framed if it meets what we define it as. Yes, I, I mean, and, and what if the result was quite a remarkable improvement on their previous result, but even though it was a remarkable improvement, it still wasn't the, you know, the outstanding grades. Um, in Australia, we, yeah. in, you know, when we they, the students finish, they come back and we, you know, we award the, the ducks of the school, you know, the high achievers of the school, and they're typically all of the ones who are in the top 10% and all of that sort of thing. And I think it's a real tragedy because I would see students and I would go up to them and say to them, hey, man, you know, I said to one, I remember saying to one student, hey, mate, that um, you, you deserve to be up on that stage. And he looked at me and he laughed and he said, um, I mean, our marking grades in the, in the high school certificate in New South Wales are a little bit different. And he said, so I only got high 60s in, in, that, in that subject or in my final results. And I said, yes, mate, but do you remember where you started? And this young man would typically be getting results in, in the mid-30s. I, I thought that was a remarkable achievement, a remarkable improvement. And even the way we, I mean, did you, I mean, think about it, Carl, like if you get the most improved award, that's not the award that is most sortly, um, uh, you know, that people are most. Uh, people, people scoff at it. Right, right. Yeah. But, but look at what it's, look at the story, you're, the picture you're painting with the most improved, the person who's made the most development. Isn't that more uh, glorious than being the most valuable player? It should be, but it isn't. Well, in my mind it is, Carl, because to me I would much rather um, say to young people, I would rather them develop um, a, a mental strength, a resilience, 
to keep persevering and looking for improvement and looking to get better rather than thinking with this fixed mindset rather than the growth mindset that we're talking about, this fixed mindset view of, oh, I can either do it or I can't. Well, I, I can't really get that result, so why bother? It's not it's not really what we're looking for. Um, I, I don't think I'll ever achieve that result. So that's why bother? That there's no resilience. There's no perseverance there. And yet, when you look at um, all the quote unquote successful stories that we read about in sport and in academics and music and in, in any endeavor in any field, there's some key character traits, aren't there? You know, and and this resilience some perseverance, these character strengths, this ability to look for improvement. You know, some, I'm thinking some of some of our top sporting figures here in Australia, and um, there's, a, there's a, a, a rugby league player that's broken all records in the history of the game over 100 years. He's still playing. He's in his mid-30s, and he, he, he's played like 400 NRL games. It's unheard of in our game, you know, in over 100 years, Cameron Smith. Um, and, 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 And his coach is still saying that um, he comes to training looking to improve. They're saying that he's the best player in the game. He will become a future immortal of the game, you know, which is the highest achievement you can achieve in that game. And the coach is saying he comes to training, he's achieved it all, and he comes to training still looking to improve. And I think that's where it's at, exactly that. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's a common story was... You know, Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, all those athletes that have this killer mindset when it comes to self-improvement and um, discipline and passion for their craft. Um, and that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a follower of um, Aussie rules over there. I don't even understand how the game is played. And I was hoping that you weren't going to um, talk about the Wallabies after this weekend, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's, all of those things are so powerful and, and, and resilience and, and all of that and having a, a, a growth mindset versus fixed and that, all that is still relatively young in education, you know, all the work that Carolyn Dweck's done and the research she's presented and her books and stuff like that. And, but it's really exciting to see that teachers are starting to add that to their, um, to their tool set, to their kitty, and be able to approach their learners to build that capacity within them? Because I think it's... Yes, absolutely, Carl. You know, I remember reading Carol Dweck's book 10 years ago and, and thinking, I wish I had have read this when I was still teaching um, because we were talking about how students are responding to failure, I guess, is one of the things that you raised. And, mm. and so if we have this definition of achievement and success, then failure has very little place in that in that scenario, right? Because then failure is seen, at, it's not seen as derogatory. The problem is, Carl, that failure in, in for our young people in this black and white fixed mindset view of the world um, is that they, they personalize it. I failed at math, I failed at this, that means I'm a failure, that means I'm dumb. And that, so they generalize it. They have a setback or a quote unquote failure. Then they describe themselves as a failure. And it's tragic. And of course, then we're caught back into those identity beliefs. And the way you see yourself, you, you tend to define yourself that way and you act that out. 
Mm. If you really honestly think and believe that you're a failure, then you, um, you ha- your self-talk is fueled that way. Your emotional state is driven by these thoughts of failure. You act out of that, you know, so there's a lot of procrastination. We're not engaged. I mean, why would I need to be? Because I'm not going to do well anyway. And so then, of course, if they're, they're acting out with those behaviours, they're not going to progress. They're not going to get the results. And then it, reaffir- it reaffirms this negative view of themselves. I told you, I told you I was a failure. Um, and it's tragic. And, 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 and in, the, in the growth mindset view of the world that we're discussing here, Carl, well, then, quote, unquote, failure is actually seen as feedback, right? It's information um, to say, oh, okay, so I didn't quite hit the standard here and I didn't quite make it here. Awesome. Now, how can I learn from that? And that's that type of growth thinking that we really want to foster in our young people and in ourselves um, rather than this black and white either or I failed or I did pass type mentality. Mm, mm. I think uh, one of the one of the best quotes, and I can't remember where I read it or who said it, but it was something along the lines of um, fail fast, fail hard and fail forward. And if you can take that approach and understand that failure is not a negative thing at all, but it's an opportunity to learn, step back, have a look, uh, and come back stronger. You know, it's something that seems so simple, but it's something that our our kids and our students just seem to struggle with, and I'm not sure why. Well, I I think it comes back to the way our system, Carl, and the way we assess. Mm. You know, I mean, I I, I honestly think uh, I mean some schools out here are doing this, and I don't just I don't know why we don't do more of it. It's the concept of the redo. You know, this whole idea of sitting down for a test, again, is so industrial age. You know, um, my daughter will come home uh, doing a math test frustrated and sometimes in tears because she's got this view that she's no good at math. And so she gets really anxious and she sits the test and she, because she's so anxious, she, she blanks out and then she gets the paper back. She comes back home and I'll never forget this. And she said, see, dad, look at this. I can't believe I got this wrong, this wrong. And she identified uh, 10 marks um, in the first few minutes and and got the correct answer because she was at home and she was relaxed and she was talking me talking me through it. And 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 her her result changed by 10 marks just there. I remember just saying to her, okay, um, let's. I'm going to sit down and do this test again and I'll, I'll put her just in my place in the, in the lounge room um, in exam conditions. So there's silence, you know, for whatever, how many minutes they got to do the whole. So that whole thing, Carl, the exam condition. I mean, really, you know, like, um, and, and so she did it and, and did much, much better, you know. Um, and so then I said to her, well, which result is true? You know, the one yeah. that school or the one that you did here, which which result accurately reflects your understanding? <laughs> yeah, and this is the problem, mate. You know, we get them to do a test or an assessment or something, and it's only. And this is the other thing that we've got to make clear to young people: it's only a reflection of your ability, your attitude, your effort in that subject at that time. It's so limiting. It's so limited. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, there is only going to be a, a few professions when these students leave school that have these time-based restrictions on being able to solve a problem. Most people are going to be presented a problem 
with almost endless resources and time and have someone say, here, solve this. And they can have the time to do that. They can work through their processes. They can find the information, access the knowledge they need. They're not sitting here for an hour going, you you got to do this, otherwise pass or fail. There's very few professions that have that. So we are, you know, we're not, we, you're right with this. Our approach to education is a little bit flawed and we need to consider making changes that are going to benefit our students. Yes, well, we agree on that. <laughs> when we think about these, you know, we talk about these kids who are failing or these um, these kids who are struggling building relationships and the pressures of social media and all of that. As as a teacher, what are some everyday strategies that, that we can employ to support some of these students who might be struggling? And I, I just missed that, Carl. So struggling in, in any context or was there a specific context? No, I, I think just struggling, uh, you know, to find that balance point of managing managing school, managing their sporting commitments, managing their peer group, managing what's going on in the home life, kids that are struggling there. How What, what are some strategies that we can employ as teachers to support that, that type of kid? Yeah, great question. Um, thanks, Carl. Yeah, so... Uh, again, you know, just check this out. You know, our young people, they've got a lot to deal with. You know, it's more complicated than when we were their age. There are many things, you know, um, school life, home life, social media, friends, uh, sporting commitments, all of this stuff. There's lots going on. And I want to make sure I'm, I'm hearing the the core of the problem. Is this, are you talking about managing overwhelm and trying to balance all these aspects out that is that what you're talking about i think so because that's what the the current well-being research out of new zealand is saying is that our kids are overwhelmed right okay so what here's what i think about this if i'm speaking to a young person if i'm who who is presenting like this and has a lot of overwhelm because of all of the things that are going on in their life I think we need to rule out a few simple things, and, and that is there's, there, there, there's lots of commitments that they have. They're overwhelmed. And so one simple thing I'd like to ask is tell me, tell me about these commitments. Are they bringing joy to your life or are they really stressful? You know, um, In other words, what I guess I'm saying here, Carl, is why why are our young people so busy and so consumed with all these commitments i think maybe as parents we need to just stop and reflect on this you know we're, we're getting them into all sort, these sorts of different extracurricular activities and i think that's wonderful i think um especially playing sport is a key protective factor in developing a young person's mental health and social and emotional literacy but sometimes they're consumed with just too much of it. They just can't fit it all in. Um, and I just think we overburden our young people. Now, it may not be that. It could very well be that those commitments are bringing joy and energy to their life. Okay, great. You really want to do these things. You, you love them. Yes, absolutely, I do. But I just can't, I can't manage it. Okay. One of the things that I think here, Carl, is, and this is true, I think, for you and I and adults and young people, when we feel overwhelmed, it's because where our thinking is not where it needs to be. We're thinking about all of the things that we have going on, all of the things that we have coming up, and we're finding it 
difficult to compartmentalize. The truth of it is, especially in our um, internet age, it's really hard to maintain focus on any one thing at for any you know solid length of time. And so then what happens is I've got this happening, I've got that happening, and they're thinking about three or four or five things in the moment. Now, right there, that's a recipe for overwhelm, right there. We all do this. And so a key mental um, strength around this would be to be able to say, if I was coaching a young person, I'd say, tell me what's causing, where, where, are, you, where are you finding the biggest stress? Like you're saying that there's lots going on in your life. There's your sport, there's your friends, there's your work. Some of our young people do part-time. All, there's all of this. Tell me, the uh, home life, uh, school life, all of this stuff. Tell me which, which one of these areas um, is creating the most stress for you. And so they're feeling overwhelmed, Carl, and what we need to do is ask them, ask them questions to focus in. And so they might say, well, it's school, it's my assessment work or whatever they identify. And so then we teach them how to compartmentalize and we say, okay, well, we know that there are issues in all these other areas, but why don't we just put them over here for now and let's focus on what you've just said, your, your work around school. And now, when it comes to school, what's the thing, what, what would need to happen to release the pressure valve at school? Now, did you notice that question? Rather than asking what's the biggest problem at school or what's your biggest stress at school, it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's the, what, what, what would need to happen to make school a much better experience for you? It's a different way of framing the question. Because then it gets them solutions focused approach. That's right. Yeah, and it gets them to identify that picture, and they might say, "Well, oh, because of my sporting equipment uh, commitments, I'm, I'm just behind in some of my assessment work or whatever they identify." And they might say, "I just need some help with this, or I just need some extra time extensions, or whatever they say." And we can start coaching them through that, right? So then, then we say, "Okay, let's work on this thing." Now, once we get some progress in that area and they're starting to get their head above water in that area, then we could say to them, if we're still having this ongoing type mentoring role with them, so how are you going with all these other areas of your life that you were really stressed about? Should we be talking about any of those other areas? Interestingly, because you've released the biggest pressure valve, they'll normally say, oh, no, look, I'm feeling much better. Or they might say, yes, you know, look, this X is, is, is a real problem for me right now. And then we'll say, okay, let's focus on that. And so overwhelm, as far as I'm concerned, is because we're thinking about several things at once in the present moment. And so I say to young people and adults, look, I understand that you've got six core projects going on right now, or you've got um, six, six really big things that are taking up a lot of your mental energy. That, that's the truth. They're all there. The truth of it is also you can't do all those six things right now. So what should we look at first? Where should we focus? And teach them to compartmentalize and be more in the present moment and focus on the task at hand. So then they release the pressure around that. And then we turn around and we look at all that stuff we've compartmentalized and we say, okay, where should I bring my attention to? next 
It needs to be this. Okay, let's focus on this. And so now we're breaking it down and we're simplifying it to one thing after another mentally. And that then helps them focus and 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 cope with the pressures going around them. You know, my great friend and mentor, Dr. David Lake, said to me that oftentimes we're physically exhausted, um, but that's more often than not because we're mentally exhausted. And so we're mentally exhausted because we're thinking about all these things and that's because we're spending so much time in the past or the future where we really need to be in the present moment. What can I do right here, right now? I've only got 30 minutes and I've got about 15 hours of work to do. Okay, well, you can't fit 15 hours into 30 minutes. So what would be one thing I could focus on for 30 minutes? And let's put the other stuff away. Because here's the thing, right, Carl? If I'm thinking, if I'm now, if I've got a 30-minute window to focus on some work and my mind is consumed with all of the other hours of work that I need to be doing, my, my focus and my direction has been dissipated. It's been taken away from the core task in that 30 minutes. So compartmentalizing it, locking it away, focusing on what you need to focus on, you get on top of that and then moving the next thing into your laser-like focus needs to be the thing. Now, a lot of people sometimes make fun of this, especially, um, you know, um, because we're just mere, mere males. It's like, ah, well, you know, if you're a female, you need to be able to multitask. And that's true. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm joking, but they're better than us in, in some of those things, Carl. But... Um, but if we get beyond the joke, um, I think there's a true that there's a truth around the psychological premise of being able to focus on focusing on three or four things in at in the present moment dilutes your focus and attention. So the more we can help our young people have a laser like focus on the key task at hand and breaking those tasks down, I think can really help with this, these feelings of overwhelm. So just to wrap this up, Carl, what, what I'm typically describing here are two things. We're talking about overwhelm. So there's external and internal. So external is all of the things in your external world, the school, sport, part-time work, relationships, these are all of your external pressures, perhaps, if you want to call them that, or commitments. Then there's internal, your inner world, and that is your mindset, your focus, your, your ability to work through all those external commitments. And so if your inner world is chaotic and anxious and is trying to process all of those things at once, well, no wonder we're feeling overwhelmed. Teaching and coaching our young people to break tasks down, to compartmentalize, to say, yes, that all of that other stuff is there, but we can't be doing anything about it now. So it's draining you to think about it. Why don't we just lock that away and compartmentalize it? And, um, and then what we want to do is focus on the task at hand. And is that, is that the sort of thing that you would be teaching in one of your accidental counsellor workshops, things like that? Yes, absolutely. One of the big, one of the strategies, um, well-being strategies we talk about around getting positive emotion, we talk about uh, positive psychology, that PERMA framework, and, and we talk about things like gratitude and acts of kindness. But the other thing that we talk about in the workshop is this whole idea of mindfulness. 
And that's what I think meditation and mindfulness can help us with. It can, we're feeling overwhelmed and it brings our focus and our attention back to the present moment. That, you know, Carl, I say this and it's provocative. The past and future in many ways, they're really human constructs. You know, um, if you think about our, our pets or even babies, when babies are born, I mean, they need to be, what, four or five years of age before they start understanding the concept of past and future. And yet um, our stream of consciousness, our thinking, our self-talk, the stories we're constantly telling ourselves, we're all talking to ourselves all the time. A lot of that is in the past and the future. A lot of our focus is in the past and the future, and it dilutes our energy, it dilutes our focus, it makes us feel overwhelmed, and then we're missing the key things that need to be happening here and now. It could very well be, by the way, Carl, that here and now, I just need to have a nap. I just need to rest. That if I've got 30 minutes, that's that's the best thing for me to do right now because then I can re-energize and then come to what I need to come to with more energy and more clarity. Um, but if we're constantly um, focusing on the past and the future, we're diluting and contaminating what our core focus should be in the present moment. And I think that creates overwhelm. It it drives down your ability to perform at your best. You can't be performing at your best when you're feeling that way. Um, so I think it's a it's a really great thing you identified. And I think that obviously adults, we feel overwhelmed also. Um, when I look at my calendar, Carl, and what's coming up, it's easy for me to feel overwhelmed also. Um, and then I just think, well, that's not a good idea looking at my calendar like that because I'm bombarding my mind with the work I have between now and the end of the year. And I keep thinking to myself, how am I going to do this? The truth of it is, Carl, I do it every year. So when I feel overwhelmed, I absolutely reject thinking about anything that is not in my current reality. It's like, well, I can't be thinking about what I need to do next week or the week after that because I need to be focusing on this right here, right now. So that's where I bring my focus. Um, and and when I'm not allowing all those other things to enter my consciousness, to enter my awareness, when I compartmentalize them, unlock them, and sometimes I do mental imagery. I open up a cupboard door and put it in there and turn the key lock and put it in a safe, do whatever mental imagery you want and go, okay, I know you're all there. You're not going away. Uh, but in time, I will be coming back and I will be looking at each one of you and giving you the attention that you need. You can even personify it, right? And turn it even into a bit of a play. Um, but that's the mental strategy I think we need to have because otherwise, like I say, we're, we're draining energy by diluting our focus. And, and mindfulness has to be probably the biggest contributing factor to me being able to cope with my workload. And you know a lot about my workload and the things that I do. Um, and I started realizing that, man, when I'm worrying about this task and this task and that task, I'm not in the present and I need to be in the present. And I have my systems and, and similar to yours, it's about um, removing those tasks out of my head and putting them somewhere safe and i i've started recently um i've i've started bullet journaling which is if, if you like productivity uh, i would highly recommend 
to my listeners is to look at bullet journaling, um, but I just dump everything into my bullet journal and I come back and I address that when I have the time to address it and I prioritize those tasks, but that allows me to be present. That allows me to be focused on what I'm doing at that point in time, whether that be family, whether that be my nine to five job, whether that be sport training, whatever. It just gets those things out of my head and I know they're somewhere safe and I don't have to worry about them and it just helps me so much. Yes, Carl, by the way, that's a really great point. Um, that we should add to what we've been talking about. uh, That whole compartmentalization and locking it away, that mental imagery is way more powerful if if you can combine it with a physical act like bullet journaling or just, you know, getting it all out of your head and recording it in however way you want to. Uh, Because if you're not doing that, if you're not recording it, well, then your brain will constantly go back because it's fearful. Oh, I can't forget this and I can't forget that. And so you're taking up a lot of bandwidth in your brain and in your focus on these tasks. So get to have a physical thing of being able to get it out of your brain. So your brain can say, okay, I can relax and focus on the present and on the task at hand because um, I'm not going to forget all that stuff. It's all recorded and mm. I can go to it when, mm. when the time's right. Mm. All right, mate, we've been getting on. We're, we're almost at 70 minutes now. So before we get to the, and it's been a good chat, by the way, before we get to the last question, is there anything that I might have missed that you want to mention or is there anything you want to ask me? Um, not that I can think of, Carl, but I've enjoyed our chat also. It's been really good. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that um, I, in the show notes, I get some contact information for you and I link into all of your upcoming workshops and where we can find more information about you because uh, very popular workshops from what I've heard and I have I've heard you talk and I've seen some of your videos and there's 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 just a certain type of person that when you hear them talk you know that they are experts at what they do and I get that feeling listening to you so um, I really am, encourage people to um jump into any opportunity to learn with you and learn from you but this last question so you're you're a well-traveled educator you you speak all over the world what's what's the most pleasant location you've hosted a workshop in or taught in um, and what stood out about that place well you you know carl um maybe because it's most recent but i visited your beautiful city and i was um fortunate enough to actually see you in person not just online and i think um Wellington's a beautiful part of the world, so um, I, I I really um, enjoyed um, the workshop there in in Wellington. Um, um, we you know we we um, I, I presented in some really beautiful seaside places here in Australia, and I've got to say, um, last year I did some workshops in Hong Kong, Singapore, and Vietnam, and I had never been to Vietnam before, and that was a remarkable place too, just culturally, you know, and how different it was, you know. Um, so that 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 was a, a really great experience, also. Yeah, and and thanks for touching on that. I had, you know, that opportunity to catch up with you was really nice, and and my family got to meet you, and we actually sat down and had that that dinner, and and we talked through a lot of things that I was going through, and and you really really helped me I guess um, see some of the pathways and some of the uh, things I needed to consider so um, I really do appreciate you taking that time to catch up and also just thank you for sitting down on a Sunday night to have a chat about you know what's most important 
to a lot of people that listen to this podcast and that's their students and how they can support them in some of the challenges they face and I think what you do really makes a difference to not just the students or the end user but also to the teachers or the the people really um, tasked with delivering some of this accidental counselling. So I thank you for what you do. Um, I hope some of my audience jump on board with your workshops and and the content that you provide. Um, No doubt they will, but um, I hope you have a, a fantastic week next week. And yeah, just thank you for jumping on board. Well, thank you, um, Carl. Thank you, uh, mate. I also appreciate all the help you've given me too. You've really helped um, get our message out um, across the world too with um, your your skill set. And I, I appreciate um, having, um, you know, you as, as an important part of uh, the work that we do too, mate. And I also love connecting with you and your family. It was really great and, and, and love to be able to catch up with you on your podcast. Cheers, Rocky.